Good morning, Redeemer family. It's a pleasure to be here preaching God's word to you. So today we're just going to continue on from the last chapter of where we were, you know, James chapter 5, where we will dive into James's strongest exhortation to the church. Now, James has been leading up to this in both chapter 4 of our text, the last time we were together, but, but James right now is going into his most harshest, pointed language for our text here today. And, and, and the goal of this is not just simply to rebuke. It's, it's to help us to see something wonderful about Jesus. And, you know, it's only when we hear hard things that we see the tenderness of our Father. And it's only when we see the Son's heart for his people that we are able to have God's word soften us. So with that, turn to James chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 6. Let's all stand as we read God's word together. James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray together. Father, you are the generous God, the giver of all good things. Lead us to understanding your heart through this text today. That you are a God who wants us to long to see the end of the story rather than to see what's right in front of us. Lord, may your spirit guide us in this text and guide the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So let's start with a basic question that will help us to understand the major shift in tone in James chapter 5 that is different from the rest of the book. And so the question is simply this. Um, what do you get mad about? What do you get mad about? I'm not talking about being annoyed with something, like your husband left the cabinet's doors wide open again and you had to close it, or, you know, the friend who knows how to push your buttons and he rearranged your desk again. I'm talking about the things that just that drive you into anger. All right? And what is that thing for you? Maybe your covenant child next to you can easily point out to you, mom, dad, you get really mad about this, right? What is that thing? You know, I'm going to make the argument that whatever thing that is that you get mad about says a lot about the person that you are. It reveals your ethics in terms of what you believe goodness is. It reveals your unfiltered self when you stop trying to be polite and start fighting for what you actually believe in. And not all anger is necessarily bad anger. You remember our earlier studies in James, right? We're, we're talking about being slow to anger, which implies that there are indeed moments and a place for righteous anger in the Christian life. James here in these verses, these six verses, he is righteously angry. 
And he's trying to help the church see God's character, God's ethics, God's unfiltered self in these verses that will help those in the church whom he is addressing to repent, to repent and focus on the living, forgiving, gracious God. Sometimes God calls us to repentance in a tender, winsome, gracious way. His kindness leads us to repentance. And sometimes, it says in Scripture, God gives us the desires of our hearts to make us see the sinfulness of our pathways. But where God gets angry the most, as we'll see here, is when those who are in the life of the church are trying to harm his sheep, his people. And it's in this anger where we actually see the deep love, the grace, the compassion that God has for us. So look again in verse 1 of our passage here. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So let's, let's start first by addressing who, who are the rich here, all right? Um, now, a lot of biblical commentators disagree, all right? Some suggest that these are non-Christians, that, that when James, anytime he's referring to rich people in the epistle, that he's referring to non-believers. Some claim that these are rich Christians, and that anytime James refers to richness in the book of James, it's talking about believers. But where the most consensus lies on this, and where I, I, I hold my position on this as well, is that he's, 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 he's casting a very wide net. He's, he's talking to the church in general and, and those in the church, non-Christian or Christian, who are wealthy. And it isn't the wealth that they're, that's the problem here in these six verses. It's, it's, it's that they're hiding behind their wealth to try and demonstrate a false piety, when in reality, they are not trusting in Jesus at all. Now, how does James know who these people are? Well, the answer is that likely he doesn't know who these people are for sure. James is writing to these 12 tribes scattered across the region and knows a truth that every generation of churches have had to deal with. There are those that will try and use money, wealth, status, prestige to hide deep down inside that they are not either true followers of God or that they trust him with their lives. And these are where James echoes his brother Jesus in reminding the churches of the corruption of riches and the judgment that will await those who place their hope in such things. Look at verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. These verses tell us that these individuals place their trust that the items that they have bought and the possessions that they own would carry them through their life, would carry them through eternity. But James reminds them, no matter how much they've accrued, no matter how much money they make, they will one day be worthless. This is the reality of all economics. Uh, 19th century. All right, let's play a little guessing game here. There was a precious metal that was actually worth more than gold, silver, or diamonds. In fact, this was a precious metal that was so sought after that the French government once kept this metal in bars right next to the crown jewels. And favored guests of the Emperor Napoleon III would actually reserve, he would reserve a, a, a prized set of utensils made out of this metal for VIPs only. And, you know, his other guests would get, like, gold and gold knives and forks, right? A pound of this stuff 
cost roughly the equivalent of $550 of U.S. dollars today. And to hold this precious metal was to be a part of the elite class. Today, we don't think of aluminum as having this kind of value because we have the production value to efficiently strip aluminum and produce tons of it. Just 50 years after the first production plant to begin to efficiently mine aluminum and sell it to the masses, a pound of that same aluminum, which was $550, is now worth 25 cents today. What are you laying up your treasures in today? Because it's more than just the physical reality of of micro and macro economics. Here's the danger of why this matters for the church. There is something deeply spiritual, not just physical, something deeply spiritual that happens when you start placing your trust in possessions to do something that only what God's promises can. What you own will begin to control you. James puts it bluntly in verse 3. It will eat your flesh like fire. It will consume your body, mind, and soul, just like a fire that consumes everything that it burns. You can't stop thinking about it. Your emotions are tied to it. And you can't even begin to think of a life separated from it. You start making goals and dreams targeting it. And you're even willing to sacrifice family, friends, community, and most of all, your relationship with the living God because of it. The words of a Hebrews biblical commentator by the name of Sturgeon, not not Charles Spurgeon, but Sturgeon, says this about the greedy. He writes this, quote, it is not possible to satisfy the greedy. If God gave them one whole world to themselves, They would cry for another. And if it were possible for them to possess heaven as they now are, they would feel themselves in hell because others were in heaven too. For their greed is such that they must have everything or else they have nothing. And what this means is this. You may not say this out loud, but you functionally may live your life this way. You believe that salvation is tied up in the very riches that you own. None of us might ever admit that out loud. But it's not hard to take a peek into our lives and see how our hopes are tied to things that we think will bring us hope. Scripture reminds us here today that it doesn't work that way. Money can never be the Savior that we think or hope it will be. There's a man by the name of John D. Rockefeller, who at the time of his life when he died in 1937, was considered to be the richest person to have ever existed. Estimations about his wealth in today's dollar put him about $423 billion, with a B, with a lifetime of earnings that stood at $1.5 trillion, with a T. So famously, after his passing in 1937, someone went to Rockefeller's personal accountant to ask him a question. And that question was this, you know, how much money did John leave? And the accountant said, John left all of it. As a devout Christian, John knew he couldn't take it with him. 
He became known for his outrageous generosity and philanthropy for the world in every significant field of study, including the church. So perhaps the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Do we understand that we can't take it with us? Because if we don't, James has some stern words that we need to consider in verses 4 and 5. The churches that James was writing to were sadly no different than the rest of the world when it came to how business was done. Now, before we get into this, again, we must remind ourselves here that that wealth in and of itself is not inherently sinful, okay? Wealth, Wealth is a great tool of life, but it's a horrible rule of life, okay? Wealth is a great tool of life. It is a horrible rule of life. And when the pursuit of wealth becomes all that consumes us, we start heading down the exact same pathway that the father of lies believed, the devil himself, when he thought he could exalt his own throne above the stars of God himself in Isaiah chapter 14. And that will inevitably lead to do what Satan tries to do to each and every single one of us in John chapter 10, to steal, to kill, and destroy. So look at verses 4 and 5. Here are those that withheld wages from laborers, and the harvesters' cries were so loud, the injustice so great, that the cries of these individuals could not be ignored by God himself. The blood that they've spilled cries on the ground, and it echoes the cries of Abel when Cain's jealousy took his brother's life. And look at the end of verse 4 and the name that James uses for God. The Lord of hosts. This name would have brought a frightening reality to the hearts and minds of the reader. And it should for us here today. But you know, when we talk about the Lord of hosts, this this isn't a name of God that, that first comes to mind, which is sad because it's a name that is stated over and over in Old Testament literature, over 200 times, to describe the Lord in a very specific way. The Lord of hosts is a conqueror. The Lord of hosts means the Lord of the armies of heaven. This is the Lord of hosts that struck down Goliath. This is the Lord of hosts that made the walls in Jericho fall down, that destroyed the false prophets in Elijah and Elijah's day. The one whom Israel proclaimed as their fortress, whose power makes the heavens tremble and the earth shaken out of its place in Isaiah, who decrees disaster to the idolaters of Baal and Jeremiah, who burns the chariots in smoke in Nahum, who swears vengeance on Moab and Ammon and Zephaniah. This is the conquering, victorious captain of the greatest military force ever to exist in the history of existence. This is the Lord of hosts. And who does this Lord of hosts defend? Well, he's defending all of his people. But in Scripture, we see God's repeated and special care for the marginalized, those who cannot defend themselves, the poor and the powerless, the shed blood of the innocent, the orphan, the widow, the voice of the voiceless. He will come and make an account for those who can't speak for themselves. So do you see what James is depicting here? He's saying to those in the church, hiding behind their wealth, their status, their position, pretending to honor God. Your day is coming. You can no longer hide what other people might be buying into. The Lord of hosts is coming. And there will be a reckoning. 
And so what is James trying to change the heart of his people? See, no amount of money can justify sin. No amount of wealth can buy forgiveness. The things that money can't buy are the capital that matter most in the kingdom of God. The fruits of our labor have nothing over the fruits of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when we invest in those fruits, we will find that it fundamentally changes the way we treat others around us. But what happens if we continue on in the course of the fruit of our labors, of the fruit of the world? Well, we result in the same way of the fruit of the world. Verse 6 talks about the end result of following the world's discipleship on wealth as salvation. You know, in a world of the Roman Empire where laborers and harvesters were considered to be property of the wealthy, there was no obligation for wealthy landowners to treat their workers with any kind of dignity or respect as human beings. They were like essentially cattle, disposable resources to be used up and discarded. So who cares if they were murdered, condemned, used up? Who cares? They were unable to resist. Going up in the fruit of the world leads them to believe that they could take on the role of God, determining who is valuable while at the same time patting their own coffers. You know, this is why, by the way, a worldly understanding of of how business is done or even a worldly economy of what dignity looks like will never do. The world and its systems will shout, you know, this is the way. This is how things get done without seeing how its message leads to the harm and to the death of the innocent. What does James wants us to understand at the end of these six verses? Why are these verses even here in Scripture? What does it have to do with this idea of the wisdom of faith that is lived out in the church community? You see, James saves his harshest, most angriest words here to protect and warn the church that Christ loved. And remind the church about what Christ himself wished for his people to know about wealth and how to use it. Do you remember what Jesus' words are on this? Jesus spends a great deal of his preaching ministry talking about the topic of money and possessions. He teaches more on wealth than he does on heaven and hell combined. Why? Because Jesus knows his audience and the things that are competing for the hope of salvation among his hearers. And he reminds us, as we read today, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And nothing but searching for the treasure of Christ, nothing but the eternal home of God's kingdom, nothing but the true fellowship of being united to Christ and his body can do to fulfill the greatest needs of our hearts. You may be asking, why are these exhortations so harsh in these six verses? Because Jesus doesn't want us to believe the lie. The perfect life isn't about building up of wealth that proclaims the greatness of our accomplishments and our names. No, the truly perfect life was lived by a homeless wanderer who lived his entire life with no place to place his head. He died without a spouse, without children. He died with no social standing, relational capital, a 401k, or even livestock or land. He died an unjust death from the kind of people that he spent a lifetime warning about. 
the most prestigious, most wealthiest, most powerful people who use that position to lord it over others in unrighteousness. You know, Jesus lived the most perfect life ever. And it was a life not stuffing his pockets, but healing the sick, raising the dead to life, breaking bread with those whom society gave up on, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. Jesus gave himself up so that you and I might see where our true treasure lies and that we would imitate our great Savior and go and do likewise. You know, and in the greatest, most profound act of all, Jesus was, like in verse 6, condemned and killed. And he did not resist this death because only in his sacrifice could the people that Jesus loved, the joy that was set before him, could lay claim to the greatest treasure of all the new heavens and the new earth. The great kingdom of God is given freely to you. The free offer of the gospel. No amount of earthly possession could earn it, but only in the great generosity of the giver of life in Christ himself earning it for us. Do you now get it and empathize with why our text here is angry and filled with righteous judgment? Because how could anyone, any church, after experiencing and knowing what the riches of Christ would be, ever buy into a narrative that would believe that worldly treasures are the key to fulfillment? How could anyone continue to say that, you know, oh, the ends justify the means, and as long as we experience the temporary good life, that we can sort of throw anyone underneath the bus? It should lead us as a church to see not just God's anger towards the unrighteous, but God's character and heart towards those whom he loves. It should lead us to repentance. And instead of looking for salvation in worth, it should cause us to look to salvation in the worthy one. Church, my encouragement to all of us here this morning is to consider where you are laying up treasures. You know, we live in a time where we are deluded to believe that, that we are not wealthy, but that person just right above us in salary is. That we have no value until someone gives us a title, a plot of land, perhaps a new golf cart or boat, a recognition that we believe that we deserve. And that somehow makes us less valuable of a person, less love in the sight of God and others. There's nothing wrong with owning a boat or a golf cart, by the way. Here, don't, do not misunderstand me. But consider this. Christ died for us not because we are worthy in His sight, but because he loved us so much that he gave us his worthiness. And he didn't stop there, did he? He gave us the Spirit of God, and he told us that he's going to use people like us to build his kingdom. He told us that he would build his kingdom through his beautiful bride, the church, and that this bride would do greater works than he. This kingdom that is here and not yet, a kingdom that is built on a different economy, a kingdom that is built on centering Christ as the Lord of all, the kingdom that helps us to build our families, our community, our world in a place that seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all of these things will be added unto you. These six verses here to remind us not just simply what God gets mad about. It's to remind us what he loves, 
or more particularly, who he loves. He loves you. He loves his people. And he wants us to love what he loves. Not the worth of wealth, but the worthiness of his son. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these warnings, these exhortations. Lord, and they are indeed hard. But Lord, may it soften us. May it soften our hearts so we can consider our lives, consider our treasures, and look to the one who has already paid the price for us, your son Jesus. Lord, let us live in the fruit of his wisdom and his life and seeking first his kingdom. We thank you for this time in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.